are listening to the Boss Level Podcast. For this episode, I'm interviewing Laura Tark, the CEO of Giganti. Giganti is the largest home electronics retail chain in Finland. Laura has a very interesting career starting in mergers and acquisitions, then moving to the role of a CFO and then CEO. We talk about these transitions and lessons learned along the way. Hope you enjoy the episode. This episode is sponsored by Vincent. What the duck is Vincent? Vincent is what happens when you put together the forerunners in modern software development, SAP consultancy, and strategic design. Vincent creates digital products and services for people and the planet and helps brands, manufacturers, and retailers to level up their game with digital commerce. Join the ride at vincit.com in creating better Mondays for us all. In your career so far, you've gone from M&A to CFO to CEO. And that's a really interesting path. So let's walk through some of the highlights. So how did your career get started? Well, I've graduated from university. I'm an engineer, a master's of science. And my husband, or then back at the time's boyfriend, studied here in Helsinki to be an, become an architect. And I wanted to, of course, kind of like that was a question, would he move to Lappeenranta or would I move to Helsinki? So I wanted to move here and that that was like 1995 and there were no jobs around. So I basically applied for all the possible jobs and then I got accepted to Citra. And then I sort of, I didn't, back at the time, Citra was doing direct funding to venture capital and then also to funds and, and sort of that in a way, got me started with the financing. And I even didn't know that those sort of jobs existed. And then I studied a little bit more and that sort of drove me into the business. And then you ended up uh, becoming uh, a partner at a capital company. And what was that like, becoming a partner at that company? And what what was your role at that company at that time? Well, I've been partnering two capital companies. So first one was when I was working as an analyst. I was Uh, 28. I was super young and sort of I didn't ever think that that would happen. But I've had the pleasure of having the best bosses in the world. So he saw potential in me and he, he sort of wanted to tie me with the company, I think, at the, at the time. And then I followed the same boss when he started a new company. And that's when I became another time when I became a partner. In your roles, you got to work with with mergers and acquisitions first as an advisor, and actually then later on, you also got to work with them as as a buyer. But let's first walk through some of the thinking around you acting as an advisor. So what were some of the lessons you learned during that time? Well, at the time, I was also still quite young, um, and I didn't have the great network of knowing everybody around. And I think a lot of the acquisitions, mergers and acquisitions especially, those are it's a trust business. I guess all the businesses are trust business, even though there are not a lot of big numbers and figures around, but it's still, it's the... Personal connections are that are the most valuable because you need to work with the partners you trust. And for me, it was super hard sort of to find my path that what are the companies that trust me and I trust them and find the right one. So I think that was a tricky one, even though I might have had the ideas. But then I find out that somebody else was able to do the transaction because they had the previous connections. They've been working together for decades And that's completely understandable. But that was also one of the reasons why I wanted to change sides because I wanted to do the things. I wanted to work with the initiatives, but it was that was not always the thing that they chose the one that came up with the idea. So what was something that you liked about being an advisor in M&A? 
the people I got to know and the the strategies of the companies and the boardroom meetings and and the things it's it's really fascinating and it's also kind of addictive because you get sort of sucked into the you know the big world where what you see in the movies type of thing and that is of course good and then of course working so many years decades with numbers you can basically cross the numbers to look whatever you want <laughs> no but that is true yeah. the harder part is making the numbers alive then you know excel everything is super yeah. easy yeah, and yeah. powerpoint even easier but the point is that actually how do you make them alive and that is the tricky part yeah how hectic was was your life at that time considering that like if you're doing financial transactions they're often like pretty pretty intense yeah i don't know what's the problem because always the things you know the the signings of the deals the negotiations they always are delayed they always happen i mean i think all the signings i've done they happened kind of like after midnight <laughs> and so it's kind of like yeah. you need to think that which time zone we're in that what date do we put on the papers and it's really a lot of waiting and so many people around and then a lot of things need to happen so But it's also kind of like that you need to have the pressure in order to do the transactions. That's always kind of like, because it's never, it's never that you can agree with the terms. There is always some giving and taking and and sort of agreeing the thing. So that's also the sort of the fun part as well. Yeah. So you actually think that there actually needs to be some amount of pressure for the deals to to close for sure yeah for sure that's that's it's mandatory that happens because yeah. if it, if it's not the really there there is not the tension in the air and that really doesn't because it's always like you said there are normally two sides maybe even you know more sides and then you need to make it transaction work for everybody i i guess that can also lead to to you some hasty decisions and some de- decisions that might might happen differently if there was more time for so. sure <laughs> for sure <laughs> so some t- and and of course of course but there are several rounds of contracts and deals made so you normally sign a LOI a letter of yeah, intent of and then yeah. you know agreements and then you still open the agreements and you you negotiate so that's also they might yeah. be very lengthy processes and then they die and then they rise back again after some months or years or whatever so yeah. it's And it's it's funny how like uh, during those negotiation processes you go into like so nitty gritty details of of everything, and, and some really small details can seem really significant and important, and you spend ridiculous amounts of time worrying about them. And then when the deal is closed, you never go back to them, and you never hear about them <laughs> at all after that. <laughs> but that's sort of also the good thing. I mean, good and bad. But that's why the lawyers are the most richest. You know, make probably the most money out of these businesses. But it's also that you need to think about the bad things because it's it's super, exactly. it's so much easier to agree when you are still negotiating and on, on sort of good terms. But then if things get ugly, you can never go back and negotiate again. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that Otto Hilska, uh, the CEO of Swarmia, said on the podcast uh, a couple of episodes ago was that when they were doing uh, uh, or they were being acquired uh, by a U.S. company, that one of the things that they spent way too little time on was was kind of understanding uh, where they're going at, like together after the acquisition, and they just spent most of their time with the legal stuff. And I think that's that's a very common thing, and that happens often. <laughs> exactly, and that was one of the reasons that sort of made me want to take the leap to the other side. Can you can you walk through, what, what were the reasons why you wanted to switch to become uh, the buyer, kind of? So you moved to Fatser uh, to work as an MRI director. Yes. Yeah. So can you walk through that a little? I've been fortunate enough to be part of some really great transactions. But then I saw kind of like we did the papers, the like you said, tons of time was used for the legal work and then doing the great PowerPoints for the trans, you know, integration plans and or even hints of integration plans. But then, you know, a big bill was sent 
And then the company was sort of left alone. And it was not the top management that's, that was handling the integration. It was kind of like the mid-level management. And they had no tools. They had no means. And so my idea was that I want to go kind of like starting from the integration point. That is, will this ever be a viable? Can we really, you know, make this thing happen? And then move on to the actual mergers and acquisitions part. So that's why I wanted to work on the other side, sort of understanding basically kind of what's going to happen after, before we even start the transaction. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I think that's actually one of the one of the really interesting parts about like uh, advisories is that like the feedback loops that you have and, and how, like, do you have them at all? Because the only potential feedback loops you might have are the earnouts. But that's a very narrow view of what happened after the transaction. And I don't <laughs> like the earnouts at all. I mean, that's another topic because sometimes with the earnout, if you ha- don't have the good plan, The earnout actually doesn't take you to the right direction. It doesn't take into consideration the changing world, especially now at times. Definitely, definitely. And I mean, like, no matter how you frame it, it's only going to be a financial incentive. Uh, and as we know, financial incentives can only go, well, not very far. <laughs> they, they just don't, don't motivate motivate people a lot. And they probably don't ease the strategy to actually to to make that alive. So that's the that's the biggest part. Thinking about the deals that you were uh, were involved in and the transactions that you were involved in, what were your lessons and like uh, what did make uh, a successful M&A? Of course, it needs to come from strategy. That is the, of course, the vital point. And however, I have the saying: even though the strategy, uh, kind of like a, a weaker strategy, becomes great and better if you have the right people. So you need to choose the right people on board. And then that's why the, the crucial part, when the transaction is made, you choose the right team to take that further. Not not just to rely on the team that was there or the ones that you have at the moment, but thinking like, where do we go and go? What do what kind of talents do we need? And what is the culture we want to embrace? So that is, I mean, this sounds idealistic, but it's actually true. But, and and this, like, the, the kind of the things that you mentioned, they're actually things that only the buyer can consider. Exactly. I mean, these are not things that the advisor can have much no. of a say in. And yeah. that's why I wanted to move to the other side as well. <laughs> yeah. Because those are those are actually the one that actually, then you create the value. The yeah. value is not made at the transaction itself, except for the sellers who might make some, some money out of it. But the point is that actually the value, like you said, comes down the road and you need to have... You You need to make the things alive. You need to adjust to the environment you're working in and whatever happens in the world. So that is the point. After M&A, you actually moved into the role of a CFO. So how did that trans or, or that transition happen? When I was working at FATSA with the M&As, then there became an opportunity. We actually bought a number two bread company in, in Sweden. And uh, back, back in the days, FATSA was number four. So we acquired a company that was kind of four times bigger than the company that we had. And then I raised my hand and said, okay, I'd like to do, do you know, even further. So I wanted to move, kind of like to be responsible for the integration process, see that what actually happened. So not just to leave the management all by themselves. And, you know, even in Sweden, and my Swedish was super poor at the time. So that was kind of like the best language course what I've ever done. But also mm-hmm. the thing was that it was super interesting to see the real, kind of like what happens, the being part of the management team meetings, being part of the sort of understanding the things when you need to align the operations and the factories and work and having the union negotiations and all the things. And and then uh, at the FAT, another FATSA company, they were started looking for a CFO. 
And then I called, I called my boss, who was responsible for the strategy and, and being the CFO for the whole Fatser, and asked that, do you think I should apply? And he said, well, I never thought that you, you would be, want to become a CFO. But now when I think about the thing you've done for the past year, it's more kind of like you've been more the CFO than anything else with the company and supporting the CEO. And also that, why not? Please do. And then I I sort of jumped the line ahead of the all the you know qualified CFOs and I got the position to be there. That's really interesting. And you've, uh, like you said earlier, you've... Uh always been strong with numbers or you you've considered numbers to be easy for you and and I think for for a lot of people uh, numbers are actually the scariest part of running a business so <laughs> do you have any tips on how to manage a fear of numbers don't be afraid just get used to it and I think I I've got the best compliment back at the time when I was working as a CFO my CEO back then said that you always make me look good Because I always kind of interpreted the numbers kind of not not in a way she wanted them to have, but so that she also understand it. So if you don't like the numbers yourself, find somebody who does and work with, together with them. It's not you don't have to do everything on your own. I think that's also a very crucial thing to understand. Uh, is there actually is there a specific thing related to the financials of of businesses that everyone should be aware of? <laughs> you need to understand what is a P&L and balance sheet <laughs> and then kind of like basic percentage calculations and plus and minus. I think that will take you very far. So it's actually like the math involved in, in the financials of a business is actually pretty simple. It's super easy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. But it's of course, and but just getting into an understanding and I mean on a higher level, the P&L, you just read a couple of, you know, annual reports and then you get the, yeah. the, the grip. Yeah, I think I think the the like the math It's super simple. I think the harder part is is kind of getting past the terminology and understanding yes. some of the basic terms related to to the to the business and so on. But those are not that difficult. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> yeah. I, I I totally agree. It's just something that like when you start reading, for example, an annual report, and if you're not familiar with the terms, it can be pretty daunting at at, at, the, at the beginning, and then you just kind of have to look look through them with the with the dictionary and try mm. to understand what they mean in that context, and then actually at the end of the day. They're super simple. Exactly. Okay, so CFO, what did you like about that role? Very little. <laughs> no, then, but I'm so stupid, so I need to try stuff out and to figure out. Okay, this is not for me. Of course, there were there were a lot of things, and I'm ever grateful for my bosses and my team. Because that was really the time when I had a bigger team and I sort of became my boss. And I'm I'm still, I, I apologize if any of those team members now listening to this because I've been probably the worst boss ever you had, but you made me much better. So thank you for that. But the point is that it's, it's that wasn't not enough for me. And even though I like the numbers and I love the numbers, but I love people more. So I wanted to work with people. And okay. I think I think that's where the miracle happens. It doesn't happen with the numbers. It happens with people. Yeah. And and that this resulted in you shifting from CFO to CEO. And what what happened there? Well, I, I after my first CFO position, I took another CFO position, even though I said that that was a mistake. But it was with a different company and it was also a little bit, it was a wider role. I was also responsible for strategy and IT and all the, all the other stuff. Super vital years for me to understand the basic of the several businesses. But But then... What happened actually was that a headhunter called and I answered the phone and I, even though I said no, they were persistent enough to say, you know, I was asked several times and then I got intrigued by my back then boss or future boss and and the idea of what what it would be. So that is the point. So you, you felt that the CFO role is probably not like it's 
it's okay, but it's not the best fit for you. And then an opportunity mm. came came along and you seized it because you felt that there's more that you can do when it's more focused on people instead of Yeah, and it was it, it was not that I was actually looking for another job. It was not even that I was I was not even thinking about it. It just came out of the blue and that's sort of what struck me also. But hey, but that's what happens in life. Yeah, yeah. And can you talk a little about like what were the kind of the changes in your thinking that happened? Like what were the thing different things that you were focusing on uh, in in your role as a CEO compared to your role as a CFO? I think the biggest part is commercial, understanding the role of sales, marketing, uh, all the brand building, which have which have fascinated me also in my previous years, but I never really got into those for one reason or another. And then of course HR. Yeah. The role of HR. What is HR? Is it? It's not. It's not just at all processes and tools which we all know, but it's also kind of like how do you embrace things, the values in the company? How do you make them alive every single day? What is the culture? How do you want to? Do you live by the culture? Kind of like that is the crucial thing. You have to be genuine as a CEO. People are sort of monitoring you all the time, even though you wouldn't think that happens. It's mm. really strange. But yeah. then you get used to it. I mean, you don't, and you shouldn't be paying attention to it. But they know every single thing you do, so you need to live by the things all the time. But that's also the. I think that is one of the great definitions of culture. That what happens when nobody's watching. Yeah. If you still, you know, act accordingly, then it. That's my best tip. Uh, and and as a CEO, you've also switched from uh, hotels to electronics. <laughs> so, can you talk a little about once again the di- the differences between these two, and and what like how that shift changed the way that you operated? All the companies I worked say that okay, we're so different than anybody else, but that's not true. I mean, of course, there are differences, and there are you know some basic things are are different. But then again, it's It's still the same because all the companies are led by people. People work there now. I I haven't found any company that it's only you know something else. So that's that that is the point. And of course, moving from hotel side where people are kind of like the hospitality is grown into. They know from the very beginning that they want to work with hospitality all their lives, and it's sort of they they live by it. And with the electronics, consumer electronics, my. My boss said to me that this is the Formula One of the retail, and it's super fast. It's super masculine. It's super kind of like all the adrenaline boosting around. I mean, that was a big shock for me. I was thinking like that can really be the thing, but it's it's really fast. It's it's all about the details. But I think all the businesses now. I don't see any slow businesses nowadays. <laughs> if you if you see one, please let me know. But the the thing is that it's so focused on sales. And how do we make then the things that are super important to me? Kind of like said, the people and the culture, and how do you embrace that? How do you make? How how do you combine those? So that has been the tricky thing for me. So uh, you've stepped from very different roles and, and very different companies, and and you've already been at this for for quite a while, and you've of course have. A, Uh, plenty of years ahead. So, what are what are some of the like lessons that you've learned along the whole arc of everything you've done? I think one big lesson for me was learn kind of like how to lead people, not manage people, but to lead people. So that and that happened actually quite late on because I didn't. I had more kind of like advisory positions with the role of M&A that's you don't have even though I had few people in my team it's it's very they are very professionals and that's the point 
Then another thing was that I'm super operational. So for me, not to be micromanaging things. And that became easier when you know less about the business. So you really can't do that. So that is my advice, that if there are some other people who want to interfere with everything, go to an area you don't know anything about. So you really can't micromanage all the things. So you, you let people who know the things handle the things. Of course, uh, the more you uh, operate in your role as CEO, of course, you kind of end up learning learning stuff and learning how it works. But still... It's it's different compared to like if you started in that area and if if you've kind of seen all the possible roles and, and so on, but of course that can also be a problem if you're not if if you don't know the like anything about the business, like how useful can you be? But you need to be curious. You can then you can ask the uh, kind of like a little bit stupidest side of questions. You can you can combine other industries. I think that has been sort of because some things work well in some companies and you might try something about them you know in the other companies as well if it's not related to the context as such but it's more kind of like the ways of working and then I think the curiosity is the one that has been my driving force I'm super curious about the people and about the uh, about the things happening in the world so that's kind of like what's yeah. keeping me going Yeah, that's that seems to be a very recurring theme in the podcast. <laughs> a lot of people talk about curiosity, and I totally uh, also uh, agree with that. That that's 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 one of the really important things. It makes a lot of things easier when you just like naturally want to figure things out and ask questions and, and understand how things work and how like what makes people tick. And exactly, so and then be also understanding that you don't know anything. That also yeah. helps, so you don't come as a supervising something, but you come from the kind of like. A, from the down under and trying to figure things out. Yeah, and I think curiosity like having that as a as a as a trait also leads you to listen more because you kind of accept that I don't know that much about this and but I'm curious and if you want to be curious you kind of have to ask questions and then listen to the answers. That's what curiosity and is. Trust people then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 You're currently on the board of five companies and you've uh, also held several CEO possessions. So you've kind of also seen board work from from different directions. So what are some of your lessons learned from board work? Again, the curiosity is a big thing. Also then just it's a practical thing, but you need to get learned and read the papers really fast and, and then understanding the numbers even faster. But that helps when, you know, when you've done, when you've read, the few things, then it becomes easier. I think the first year I've been also sort of uh, easy on myself that the first year is something that you need to learn. You need to listen carefully. You need to read all, not just the board material, but all the news relating to the business and, and understanding that what's going on and then combining the things. That's one thing. And I think my sort of role as on the board level has been because I've been recruited when I've been a CEO is so, sort of supporting the management and supporting the sort of I sometimes feel so I, I understand how the CEO is feeling on the yeah, board meetings. Exactly, and, exactly. and I tried yeah. not to go into Stockholm syndrome on, the, on, <laughs> on that level. But it's the, the truth is that it's sometimes the Sometimes the board is asking stupid things and it's mm. it's not their fault. It's sort of but how the CEO handles that thing and how do you how do you make the most? But I think as a CEO it's super good to have a board that challenges you and ask the even the questions that seems ridiculous, but sometimes they get you thinking. It's not the right it's not the exact thing they ask, but that makes you think some other routes and then you come up with some other ideas. At least that happened to me when I was working as a CEO. 
So one of the issues that can can make it harder for the CEO in that position to to think clearly is that if if there's a sense of fear present that you kind of you're fearing for your job because they are the people who either hire you or fire you. So do you have any any thoughts on on, on how to make the the environment such that it is actually it makes the CEO it, it makes it easy for the CEO to actually start start thinking and not just try to defend everything. That is a really, and you're so right. It, there, if there is a kind of like lack of trust or a feeling of fear, nothing good happens ever. I don't think that has never become in any circumstances, not just on a board level, good, good results. I think the point is that the board needs to know also one another, their strengths, sort of their backgrounds, how what sort of things you can ask them to support the, the management with. And that's why I think it's crucial that the board has uh, casual dinners with the management team, sort of having strategy days with the management team. So you get to build the bond, you know, a little bit more about the people, because it's still people who make the things. Yeah. It's It's not bored as such but but also then being brave enough and having enough time to ask the questions and not just to go through the agenda and making sure that the meetings are only for two hours sometimes they need to be a little bit longer and then I think it's super vital that the board has their own meetings without the management as well so you can really share and because I think the role of chairman of the board is it's so important and so vital and that also sets the tone for the whole board work yeah yeah So what are some of the characteristics or traits or habits that have helped you personally navigate all these different roles? Again, the curiosity, sort of mm. ever thinking about how, you know, I'm the one person who always wanted to see, even even before Facebook time and even before Instagram, I wanted to see people's photos. I was super curious about how, you know, oh, somebody said that I want to show you my holiday pictures. Like, oh my God, great. And I was like, oh my God, I can't handle this. But I was that one, you know, <laughs> and maybe it's sort of like a peeping Tom thing. No, really, not really. But the, the thing is that I've, I've always had the kind of like understanding that what is really, what is sort of, and I didn't of course analyze it this way back then but understanding a little bit more background of the people and kind of like what ticks them it's so, so much easier to connect with them and actually specifically let's talk a little about your your kind of time management or productivity management because because given the the like roles that you've had and and the, the amount of roles that you're currently holding it's quite a lot of work so how do you manage all of that not at all <laughs> so <yeah>, horrible <laughs> it's it's a it's a tough question i've been be- i've become better to say no but still i'm sitting on three very active boards uh, actually and The first year you need to, for the new board, you need to really focus and it's it's much more work. And then, of mm. course, you know, times like COVID and, you know, Russian crisis, the war, the horrible mm. war in Ukraine. Those are the things that everything happens at the same time in all the companies. So then it, yeah. it's it's a nightmare to handle. But then also you need, I, I become better. I sort of, I also understand that it, it kind of like the working as such is not a problem for me. Kind of like the work, unfinished work, it's bothering me more. So I actually also enjoy the the working part. But the point is that if I then I decide that, okay, I do this now, I can leave it there because I know that I will, I will finish it at, you know, at the time that I've agreed with myself that then I will do and I can do something else. I can be with my family. I can go and do yoga or whatever, weightlifting or whatever I want to do. So that's the point. So I've also, I'm also a little bit selfish. Oh, not even a little bit, probably a lot sel- uh, a lot of this that I protect my own time. I need to be a lot alone as well. Yeah. And, and 
what you're saying is that you are able to drop things and kind of leave them where they are for a specific uh, amount of time and then pick them up later and you don't really need to stress about them. Exactly. Meanwhile, yeah. I, I think the natural tendency, what happens is that you kind of, I would need to be working on this. I, I got to drop this now because I have to do something else, but I should be working on it. I should be working on it. And that stresses you out. And it would be much easier to just say that I'm going to drop this for a while and I'm exactly. not, I'm going to go like I'm going to get back to it in three days and during that three days I'm just going to leave it there. Exactly and and actually I learned that when the kids were super young and you know of course I was feeling bad leaving them at daycare and then going to work and feeling bad when I was with them because I should be working I said that okay this will drive me crazy I can't never handle anything and then I sort of made peace with myself that Kids are fine. They at daycare. That's my God. That's kind of like our family choice that they're there. And I, I really enjoyed my work. So I can really, I can be happy at work. I, I enjoyed my work a lot. So that's sort of, that was the basic that happened 25 years ago. So now it's been basically, I've sort of been adapting this also to smaller things that focus on what you're doing because you can only do really one thing at a time. Yeah. Yeah, just a really like small detail here, but one of the things that that I did at some point, like when I when I was feeling pretty stressed about work stuff was that I just like turned off all notifications on my phone and I also like took out most of the apps related to work from my phone and and the point was there that I ended up looking at like Slack for example the, like a group chat uh, application when I was out with the kids and like I read something I couldn't do anything about it because I was with the kids somewhere. And the only thing that resulted from that was me stressing out about exactly. it. And like, I couldn't do anything about it. And and like, it was much better for me to not look at it. And then when I was maybe later in the evening when the kids had gone to sleep, I'd go to the computer and read it. And then I could actually maybe do something, at least respond to it. Exactly. Uh, and it just made so much, made it, like, it made a huge difference for me. Because then when I was with the kids, I'd focus on the kids and I wouldn't read other stuff. You are very good. I'm 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 still not there. I'm of course trying to learn that. And of course my kids are older and they are with their phone all the time also. So <laughs> that is the thing about they say that mom, you're much more addicted to your phone than than we are. But that is so true. But there there is also this rule that if you're somewhere and you get an email that if it takes you more than five minutes to handle it, don't spend any time on it now and just do it when you have the time or whatever email, whatever message sort of thing it is. So, I, And I think that is the crucial thing, that be there, focus on the things, get it done, and then it doesn't bother you. Of course, sometimes you need to leave things unfinished and then you know you need to come back. But it's also sometimes good that you don't do everything all at once because you can then reflect yeah. and it becomes a lot better that way. Yeah. Have you have you found methods of managing stress? So when you feel that you are really stressed out about things and you kind of you feel that things are piling on your, your neck, like what, what do you do then? I go for a walk and then I swim in a cold sea. <laughs> that's what uh, that's it's a new hobby. I developed that not the walking part, but the cold sea swimming. I think everybody adapted to it during the COVID times because that was basically the only thing you could do. <laughs> but it's also it's also very practical. I'm also yoga. I've oh no, I'm not teaching teaching yoga, but I've done the yoga teacher degree. So that and meditation, really, really good. If you're feeling yeah. too stressed for meditation, listen to the tapes, just wind down because that, that calms you. And then exercising. That's, I think that is even, if you're feeling really shitty, go to do a workout. Yeah. Yeah. So it comes back to the basics. Yeah, I think so. Um, have you had especially dark moments during your career and and how did you navigate those of moments of course <laughs> i'm i'm super emotional person oh god the 
the amounts of crying I've done at work and to my bosses, I, I, I'm so sorry. And, you know, tears with guys, that's never a good combination. <laughs> They sort of freak out. I've learned uh, women can handle that a little bit better. But the dark moments, of course, and if nobody has had them, I think there's then you're denying yourself of something or because mm. that and it needs to happen also, because those are the things when you need to go back and reflect that what is your true self? What is what I really want to do? Where I want to spend my time with? What, what are the important things? And yeah. I think those are very powerful moments, even though they feel horrible at the time. Yeah, yeah. Do you read and do you have any recommendations on 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 books? I read all the time. I read way too much. I'm also addicted to books. I mean, I read and then I listen to books. Now I've been reading a lot of history books, sort of reflecting back. It's more, it's not the kind of like the, what actually happened in history, but sort of stories built around Second World War, even the Mid-Ages. So I kind of like various books, because I think a lot of, a lot of great things happens from the, uh, the not just the, from the business books and management books and leadership books. It's, it's the other books that broaden your culture is super important. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I and I think one one category of books that I found very very helpful or very interesting is like biographies. Yes. Yeah, because it's so interesting to read like people who have led very different a very different life to yours, and it's 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 really interesting to see how they thought about things and and the steps that they took and and so on. It's it's kind of a it's a way for you to live several lives. Exactly, <laughs> and I those are great, and I, I really love them. That is that is so true. Yeah. Is there something that like specific, or is there a book that kind of stands out for you uh, from from all the books that you've read? The thing is that I've read so many books that they sort of get blurred in a way. But one book that I read when I was young, probably the age of my my daughters who are now 16 and 20s, uh, on that age was Milan Kundera's The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Mm-hmm. And and then I've, I've read that book several times afterwards. And it, that's there are so many layers in that book, like there are always at Kundera's books. So, but, but that's something that I, I like that. Yeah. Awesome. Can't say I've read that, but I'll, I'll <laughs> look it You should try. Up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe it doesn't, but it, it's also kind of like, I think the crucial, I mean, the in, interesting thing is that when you reflect that, how was I feeling back then when I read it when I was 18? Yeah, and I'm then sure. when, when I was reading when I'm 28, when I'm reading when I'm 48, sort of yeah, things. Yeah. So. yeah, that's actually interesting that for some books, uh, I, I have the similar uh, experience that I remember where I read them and what I was thinking at the time mm. when I read them. Mm. And it's it's interesting how you can recall that when you read them again. And mm. I actually have have the same thing with music sometimes that I remember specific moments when I first heard a song exactly. or like or not necessarily the first time but like in a meaningful moment I heard exactly. a song and mm. I re- remember that forever mm. and it's it's with that song you can always kind of co- go back to that moment and remember what we were thinking mm. and what was the context of of your thinking and why why you were there it's really interesting it's it's kind of like you need to listen to kind of like your own feelings and senses in in very different ways yeah So thanks a lot for your time. It's It was really a pleasure to have this chat with you. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. <laughs>